Anyway, I have a favorite story that I share often. I asked my wife, I have I shared this recently? And she said, well, the last time you spoke was in March. You didn't share it then. So, um, um, I know when I, once I start, most of you will recognize it. But I know there's some people here that haven't heard it. And that's all I need is just one. Because I, I love this story. It's a true story. It happened during World War II. And so let, me, let me just share it with you. And then I, I have a point to make before we pray. John Blanchard stood up from the bench. He straightened his army uniform. And he studied the crowd of people making their way through Grand Central Station. He looked for the girl whose heart he knew but whose face he didn't, the girl with the rose. His interest in her had begun 13 months before in a Florida library. Taking a book off the shelf, he found himself intrigued not with the words of the book, but with the notes penciled in the margin. The soft handwriting reflected a thoughtful soul in an insightful mind. And in the front of the book, he discovered the previous owner's name, a Miss Hollis Maynell. With time and effort, he located her address. She lived in New York City. And he wrote her a letter introducing himself and inviting her to correspond. The next day, he was shipped overseas for service in World War II. And during the next year and one month, the two grew to know each other through the mail. Each letter was a seed falling on a fertile heart of romance was budding. Blanchard requested a photograph, but she refused. She felt that if he really cared... It wouldn't matter what she looked like. When the day finally came for him to return from Europe, they scheduled their first meeting, 7 p.m. in Grand Central Station in New York. You'll recognize me, she wrote, by the red rose I'll be wearing on my lapel. At 7 o'clock, he was in the station looking for a girl whose heart he loved but whose face he had never seen. And I'll let Mr. Blanchard tell you what happened. A young woman was coming toward me. Her figure was long and slim. Her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears. Her eyes were as blue as flowers. Her lips and chin had a gentle firmness. And in her pale green suit, she looked like springtime come alive. I started toward her, entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose. As I moved, a small, provocative smile curled her lips. Are you going my way, sailor? She murmured. Almost uncontrollably, I made a step close to her, and then I saw Hollis Maynell. She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a woman well past 40. She had graying hair tucked under a worn hat. She was more than plump, her thick ankled Feet thrust into low heel shoes. The girl in the green suit was walking quickly away. I felt as though I was split in two. So keen was my desire to follow her. And yet so deep was my longing for the woman whose spirit had truly companioned me and upheld my own. And there she stood. Her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle. I did not hesitate. My fingers gripped the small, worn, blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it'd be something precious, something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which I had been and must ever be grateful. I squared my shoulders and saluted and held out the book to the woman. 
Even though while I spoke, I felt choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard. You must be Ms. Maynell. I'm so glad you could meet me. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is about, son, she answered, but the young woman in the green suit who just went by begged me to wear this rose on my coat. She said, if you were to ask me to dinner, I should tell you that she's waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. She says that was some kind of test. And that's how John Blanchard met his wife. Now, I like the word, the way the word test is used in this story because it's the way it's used in James chapter 1. I want to read it in the Amplified Version. It says, Consider it wholly joyful, my brethren, whenever you are enveloped in or encountered trials of any sort or fall into various temptation. Now, let me just pause here a minute. In Greek, the word that we translate trial and the word that we translate temptation is the same exact word. Not cousins, exact word. Because every trial can become a temptation, depending on how you respond to it. It can cause you to uh, become a cynic. Lose hope. Be bitter. Or it can make you stronger. So he says, consider it wholly joyful when you and you're, you're, are enveloped in or encounter trials of any sort or fall into t- various temptations. Be assured and understand that the trial in the proving of your faith, and other translations says the testing of your faith, bring out endurance and steadfastness. And patience. But let endurance and steadfastness and patience have full play. And do a thorough work so that you may be people perfectly and fully developed with no deficits. Defects, excuse me, I read that wrong. With no defects, lacking in nothing. See, the word used for testing is one that demonstrates what's inside. That's what happened with Mr. Blanchard. She, she tested him to say, all right, big boy, it shouldn't matter what I look like. You say you love me. Let's just see if that's the case. And he passed the test. Um, let's pray together before we begin. Father, thank you for the privilege of uh, knowing you. For the life that we have in Christ. For the freedom and the joy and the peace that's ours because we're part of your family. Thank you for your word and for the, uh, I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being alive in days like right now. We have the opportunity to be tested so that we can realize the faith we have, so that we can realize who we are who you are, and that we can join you in what you're wanting to do. Ask your blessings, Lord, on this time that you'd give us ears to hear what you would say and that you'd give us courage to respond in obedience to what you're telling us to do. 
I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I hadn't spoken in church until last time was May the first. I mean March the first. That was before COVID and a lot of stuff happened around here in our in our country. And um, I, I, I told uh, Bobby that when I did speak, I wanted two Sundays in a row. I kind of regretted that later because right now it's crazy in our life. We're we sold our house. You know, I'm getting ready to retire. We got to pack and move and all these inspections. And the Lord knew what he's doing. I mean, I think he always does. Okay, I just want to tell you that. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of, a couple of times felt like, Lord, I'm going to tell him to postpone this. But let me, let me share just briefly what I shared last week. We looked at what it means to believe in God. As the Bible uses the word believe, it means to to trust in, to rely upon, to to, to cling to. It, it, it involves a commitment on our part. It's, it's not just thinking something is true. Jesus tells us that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. And eternal life is much more than going to heaven when you die. It's a quality of life that centers around knowing God the Father, knowing Jesus the Son, knowing the Holy Spirit now while we walk the earth. We don't invite Jesus into our life so much as He invites us into His. I ask you as a congregation to declare out loud who you experientially knew God to be and in in. And what are some ways that he has acted consistently with who he is in your life? And people said some things. It was interesting to me what was said and what wasn't said. I was listening to some things that weren't said. That, that I would have been the first thing I would have said. I'm not saying I'm right and you're wrong. I'm just saying we're different. And that's a good thing. Uh, last week we looked at how the Jewish people in the Old Testament believed in God, how they trusted in Him and relied on Him and clung to Him. They knew two things to, to be foundational about God. The first thing is that His Word was true. And the second thing was that He was sovereignly leading them along paths of righteousness with His Hesed, H-E-C-E-D, Hesed love. That's a unique word I'll talk about in a minute. They knew that God's faithful love was everlasting and that along with his goodness, it would be pursuing them their entire life. That's Psalm 23. Their response to faith was to remain, abide in the story that God had placed them in because this was where life at his best, at its best was to be found. The word hesed is a word we translate it in English as steadfast love. You know, the steadfast love of the, of the Lord never ceases. You know, the, you know the song, you know the verse. It's translated as mercy. It's translated as loving kindness. And those are the main ways. It's not found in any other language other than Hebrew. It combines the idea of love and loyalty. It combines commitment and sacrifice. It, it's one-way love. Love without an exit strategy. Hesed love will love regardless of the response of the one loved. 
It's the determination to do someone good no matter what, to be faithful to a covenant regardless of its impact on you. It wills to love with every fiber of your body when every fiber of your body is screaming out to run. I don't know if you've ever been there, but you will. This determination to love is at the heart of Jesus' relationship with His Father, and it is also at the heart of our relationship with the Father as well. It's a commitment that lies at the heart of Christianity. If you take away Hesed love, Christianity loses its power. When you move into the New Testament, which is written in Greek, the word closest to Hesed is the Greek word agape. It's the word used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes, trusts and relies upon it, clings to Him, will not perish or waste their life, but enjoy God's life, eternal life. It's the word used in Romans 5.8 that says, God demonstrates His own love for us, toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's the word used in John 13, 34, when Jesus says to His followers, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Well, how did Jesus demonstrate His love for His disciples? He went to the cross, and He laid down His life for them. Is He commanding us to lay down our lives for one another? What do you think? I believe He is. Now, my first reaction to this verse, I don't have it on my refrigerator, by the way. My first reaction is, I can't do that. I know me. I have a long way to go in this area. And if you think the same way, welcome to the human race. Jesus, I think, understands our limitations. And He knows we're incapable of loving one another as He loves us. Really, only He can do that through us. That's why He invites us to follow Him. To come to Him and learn of Him, as it talks about in Matthew 11. You see, all of us are on a journey that's either characterized by self or is characterized by love. Every choice we make is creating the person we're becoming. As Christians... You and I are moving away from a journey characterized by self and moving into a new one that's characterized by love. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It's another verse I don't have on my refrigerator. But, but to deny yourself does not mean that you become a non-person. It means that you get off the throne... And join the human race. It means that you recognize that you're not the center of the universe. 
this comes to a shock to some of you. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to get used to it. That, that everything does not revolve around you. Hello? There are many rights that we assume are ours that we have to let go of. Things like the right to be in control. What I've had to learn is the right to my own time. The Lord spoke hard on that one with me. The, the right to be understood. The world would be a better place if everybody just thought the way I thought. The right to be recognized. The right to be appreciated. Often, the person that we're called to love is not capable of loving you in return. The way you need to be loved anyway. So, so, so what are you going to do with that? Let me ask, let me ask you a question. I mean, I mean don't, say, don't answer out loud because it would get you in trouble if you did. If you're married or in a relationship and you have an argument and a misunderstanding... You know, Bonnie and I have had some. I just want to let you know that. Okay? How do you handle it? I'll give you some options. Do you go into your ice cave? Do you give them the silent treatment? Do you pout? Do you tell them off? What do you do? Don't answer, please. And nobody giving anybody any elbows, please. There really is another option where you don't leave the scene and you learn to let Jesus handle it. He can. I just want to tell you, He can. And, and He can set you free in the process. It's a good thing. It's called growing up. I don't care how old you are, we still have some things to do. Jesus says... Come, follow me. Because that's where you learn to love on the journey with Jesus. On the way, we discover not only love, but we discover our true selves. We all have selves that's been conditioned by our past and our upbringing. And it's very contrary to what God has in mind. But as you follow Jesus, not only do you discover love, we discover our true self. Learning to love is inseparable from coming fully alive as a person. I'm 73. I don't know how that happened. I was 25 a couple years ago. Crazy. People look at me like I'm an old man. That's wrong. I'm just saying. But I don't want to die... And not become all God intends me to be in Jesus. And the clock's ticking. When Jesus calls us to follow Him, it's because He wants to teach us the love of the Father. John 14.6, very familiar verse to most of us. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father but through me. But through Him. We're talking a method here. Through Him. He's the way. The name for Christians in the first century was the way. If you want to see a reference to that, there's one in Acts 9, I think verse 2, 19, 9, 24, 14. They referred to Christians as the way. Would you, would you like to be a Christian? Then you've got to be a part of the way. Make sense? Now, now, now an important truth to understand is that we have to commit to hesed or agape love with God before we can do it with one another. I'm going to repeat that. We have to commit to hesed love with God before we can do it with one another. Faith must come before love. And God's not optional or secondary to life. He must be all-consuming. The absolutely call of our Creator is to see Him as the center of all things. There's no other options. He's not stuck out there like a spare tire that you pull out when you need Him. He's everything. And He wants our all-in love and trust. That's the beginning point. I want to ask you, have you made this commitment of hesed love with God? Just, just answer it to yourself. Because, uh, as I talked about last week, first time I thought I heard the message of the importance of trusting God, it scared me to death. Because I knew... He was desperate to have volunteers to do some stu- some some bad things. I mean, some you know, go to Barneo, work with the pygmies, you know, be a preacher, you know, you know, crazy stuff. That if you trusted him, because I didn't know him, I didn't know that he wanted to give me life at his best. But I found out. Now, 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 let me give you a glimpse of what it will mean. If you truly love God and go all in with Him. At the heart of Hesed love is incarnation that leads to death. Now that sounds like a heavy thing to say. But at the heart of, of, of this love that God has and that He wants us to have toward Him... It involves incarnation that leads to death. I mean, think of Jesus. John 1.14 says the Word, referring to Jesus, became flesh and He dwelt among us. The message paraphrase says, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. You and I need to learn to be present with the people that God has put in our lives. And not be distracted by our own agendas. I'm really learning that. Let me just let me just make an aside here. People in North Carolina are different than people in Florida. You might want to write that down. 
People in North Carolina take a long time to say what they want to say. I stopped one time to tell a guy that his cows were out. And it was cold, but I wanted him to let him know his cows were out down the other end of the pasture. I about froze to death before I could get away from him and get back in my car. Because he wanted to start at the beginning and tell me everything about the whole area. And I'm saying, come on. Finally, I said, man, I'm sorry. I am freezing to death. i got to go. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Particularly if you learn to be present with who you're with. And don't worry about your own agenda and your list that you've got to get done in order for life to be okay. Life is okay without you getting your list done. You might want to write that down. Hebrews 5.8 tells us that although he was a son, Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered. Now, now, now Jesus was, uh, he was a son. I mean, he was rejected. He was misunderstood. He was unfairly judged. He was abandoned by the people in his life when he, when he needed them and then when he walked the earth. And he will continue to be, experience these type of things, as he walks the earth through you and me here on earth. People are going to respond to Jesus in the same way. But, but, but through this, Jesus learned his identity and his significance from the unfailing love relationship that he had with the Father. And that's what he wants to teach you and me. Suffering, and by that, when I say suffering, I mean relational suffering. It's the crucible for love. I, I don't like that. It, it, I like everything to be smooth. Everybody just get along. You know, uh, i got kids in my family that don't think the way I think. They don't know the Lord the way I want. I want to know the Lord even better than me. But, but, and so when I'm around them, it's always a strain because we see life very differently. And it's, it's this place of prayer for me often. But, but real suffering is the crucible, and it's the crucible for love. We don't learn to love anywhere else. Suffering doesn't create love, but it's a hotbed where love can emerge. The great Barrier to love for all of us is our ego or, or the ruling life of self. In a long-term suffering relationship like you have with your kids or family, if you don't give in to self-pity, slowly, almost imperceptibly, self, I'm not talking about who you really are, but this controlling, got to be right, got to be ruling, it will die. The death of self offers an ideal growing condition for love. Now, I'm not saying you need to be passive. I'm not saying you need to be a doormat so that uh, people can walk on you. But, but, but neither do you need to flee that situation, that, that, that crucible where God is working. We have to trust God. We have to hang in there with the story God's permitted in our lives. Hope is critical in love. We endure because we know that, that God acts in time and space. 
And we desperately expect Him to do so in our situation. Now, sometimes He comes through at 11.59. I like for Him to come in earlier. But we expect God to be present and active. We know we're not alone. He's with us. He's in us. We know He loves us with Hesed love. And we know as we keep showing up for life that He is working His life in us. And that is really important. That's, that's, that's what it's all about. God's grace powerfully works when there's no exit. We can experience the strange and powerful presence of God when we're choosing to love where God's placed us. I've always said, you can choose your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives. You got some relatives I'd trade you. Let me ask you a question. Are you and I related in the Lord? We have the same Heavenly Father, so... So, ah, yes, we are. So... Do we have the option of not learning to love one another? I didn't hear you. Okay. Well, have you have you taken that option? I mean, there's my people I like to be with, and then there's them. Talking to myself as much as anybody else. I understand that love can be lonely. Have you ever loved someone that doesn't understand you? You don't understand them, but you're related. It can be lonely. The the um, the greatest acts of love are usually always hidden. People don't see it. It, it can be unfair. It, it can wear on your souls. You know, in the middle of the night, sometimes I find myself praying for my kids that I want them to, I want to be free in the freedom that I know experientially. This isn't a time to be angry or afraid. This is a time to realize the Lord is the Lord. And He's good. And He loves us. But, but, but we endure the weight of love by being rooted in God. Our resources for living come from Him, not from the person we're loving. The more difficult the situation, the more we're forced into utter dependence on the Lord. We simply do not have power or wisdom or the ability in ourselves to love. At least I don't. If you do, help me. Understand how to get it from the Lord. But we know without a shadow of a doubt that, 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 that that's the way it is. And so that is the beginning of faith. At least for me, knowing that I can't love on my own. See, loving one another isn't be nice. That's not loving one another. I can be nice in my own flesh. 
won't be real, but I'll be nice. The beginning of faith is knowing we can't love her on our own because faith is the power for love. Our inability to sustain love drives us into a dependence on the Lord. I don't see faith as a mountain you climb as much as it is a valley you fall into. Lord, I need you. I can't do this. This is as Adam told God, this woman you gave me. Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. But he who comes to God must believe that He is or that He exists and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. Now, we seek the Lord because we desperately need Him. As we learn to love the people that God's permitted in our world, it can be very liberating for us. The resurrection life of Jesus begins to emerge in us. His presence and His beauty begin to shine forth. I'm talking a real thing here. His Spirit gives us power to love no matter what. And we change. Isn't it amazing to know that you can change? We, we learn a new way to think and a new way to live. We repent, to use a word that's been used a lot this morning. We recognize that, that we don't have to create our own story. We can rest in the one planned for us uniquely before the foundation of the world by our Heavenly Father. Isaiah thirty fifteen says, In repentance... In rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you are not willing. I think a question that's been raised this morning is, are we willing to repent? See, I want everybody else to change. (laughs) Don't go mess with my stuff. We all have to change our way of thinking and our way of living radically if the kingdom of God is going to be displayed in and through this church and in our lives individually. I I believe that most repentance is not a traumatic, come-to-the-altar kind of thing. I believe it's, it's more like a gentle rain slowly softening the hardened soil of our hearts so that we begin to see ourselves or someone else in our world in a new way. And we get more and more free in Jesus. See, you could, if, if, if you... Or from, if you are for Donald Trump, when you get free in the Lord, you can be around somebody that's for Joe Biden. Without it creating turmoil in your soul. 
Because both of you have the same Heavenly Father. And you don't got to try to fix them. <laughs> you, don't have to fight. you don't have to fix them. That's your job. I love Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 in the message paraphrase of the Bible. When Jesus says, are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you will recover your life. I show you how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. This is what Jesus offers if we choose to love God. And let me say this. The only alternative is loving yourself and that will destroy your soul. So the question remains for all of us. Have we made this commitment of Hesed love with God? Have you, have, have, have you done that? Only you can answer that question. We will be incapable of truly loving one another unless we first love God. And make Him and His will the center of our lives. Then the journey, I might even say the romance, begins. I want to uh, I want to share a couple of readings. When I was a hospice chaplain, I visited in a lot of homes, and in that in, in a lot of homes, I saw this plaque on the wall frequently. It was called "Footprints in the Sand." How many of you have ever seen that "Footprints in the Sand"? Okay, all right. Well, I'll read it to you in case there's one that has never. Read. And 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 it just said one night one night a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking on the beach with the Lord, and across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene, he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonged to him, and the other to the Lord. When the last scene of his life flashed before him, he noticed back at the footprints in the sand, and he looked back at the footprints in the sand, he noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. And he also noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest times of his life. That really bothered him, and he questioned the Lord about it. He said, Lord... You said that once I decided to follow you, you would walk with me along the way. But I've noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there was only one set of footprints. And I don't understand why, when I needed you the most, you would leave me. The Lord replied, my precious child, I love you and I would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you can only see one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Now, that's, when I first read it, I said, that's good. Then later I got to think about it, I said, you know what? That's pretty incomplete. First of all, it doesn't talk about following Jesus. It talked about He kind of walking alongside us and like He's there when we need us. Well, the one thing about this, that reading is He does carry us. When we desperately need Him. There's sometimes, you know, we say all we need is God. There's times in your life when you're going to get to the place where all you have is God. Then you're going to realize all you need is God. Been there a couple of times. And um, I'm thankful. 
But I found a new version of this. And I like it so much better. And I want to share it with you. Imagine you and the Lord are walking down the beach together. For much of the way, the Lord's footprints go along steadily, consistently, rarely varying the pace. But your footprints are disorganized. They're a disorganized stream of zigzags, starts, stops, turnabouts, circles, departures, returns. For most, for much of the way, it seems to go like this. But gradually, your footprints become more in line with the Lord's. And, and they're soon paralleling, par, paralleling, 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 par, they're parallel to his steps consistently. You and Jesus are walking together as true friends. That seems perfect. And then an interesting thing happens. Your footprints that once edged the sand next to Jesus's are now walking precisely in his steps. Inside his larger footprints are your smaller ones. And you and Jesus are becoming one. This goes on for many miles. But gradually you notice another change. The footprints inside the large footprints seem to grow larger. Eventually they disappear altogether and there's only one set of footprints. They have become one. This goes on for a long time. But suddenly the second set of footprints is back and this time it's even worse. Zigzags all over the place, starts, stops, gashes in the sand. A veritable mess of prints. You're amazed and shocked. The dream ends and now you pray, Lord, I understand the first thing. The zigzags, the fits. I was a new Christian. I was just learning. But you walked on through the storm and helped me to learn to walk with you. That's correct, the Lord says. And, and the, fowler, the smaller footprints were, were inside of yours. I was actually learning to walk in your steps, following you closely. Very good. You've understood everything so far. And then when the smaller footprints grew and filled in yours, I suppose I was becoming like you in every way. Precisely. The Lord, is there a regression or something? The footprints separated, and this time it was worse than the first. There's a pause as the Lord answers with a smile in His voice. You didn't know? It was then that we danced. The Lord is calling us to an intimate relationship with Him. That's why we're here. And He wants us to be one with Him. He wants to live His life through us. He wants us to dance. And demonstrate to the world what life truly is. It starts with loving the Lord with all your heart. And then we can love one another. Amen. Thank you.